This month we began a series of lessons uh, called Habits of Effective Living. It's roughly based on a resource that's listed in your sermon outline from Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of Successful Living. So I've entitled this Habits of Effective Living, and a couple of weeks ago, actually three weeks ago now, uh, we began that series, uh, and then uh, the next week, a few weeks, uh, or the next week following that, first Sunday of the month, uh, we began with this statement, live with the end in mind. And that's the first one, where you're thinking about what is, how you want this to end up, and then you ask yourself, okay, what do I need to be doing right now? To help accomplish that. So today we're going to build on that and continue with that uh, thought. Uh, we were going to continue with that thought last Sunday, and instead, uh, Bill was at urgent care on Sunday morning, uh, being tested for COVID negative, tested for flu negative, tested for strep negative. They said we don't know what's wrong with you, but something is apparently. And uh, so a very, very bad cold, some sinus issues and all of that. Uh, not 100% better today, but, but better, better. Eric and I go back and forth as to who's feeling the worst. But I think we're both actually on the mend. And so that's a good, good thing. Every day seems to be a little bit better. I appreciate my friend, uh, Davey Carter, uh, his wonderful message to walk and live worthy of the gospel and worthy of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice from Philippians 1 at the last, literally the last minute, (laughs) last Sunday morning. And then Eric subbing in for me last Sunday evening in our class. They were both a great, great blessing um, to me. Um, I encountered something a while back. I was able to be at the the Living with Loss workshop, which, as Eric said, was a, a great thing. And I amen him heartily. And his comments, we do a lot for our widows and widowers, uh, but a lot of what we do is not in a deliberate way. And so we're going to be speaking some about that uh, today, and hopefully that will translate into some more specific deliberate action uh, for that very important part of our ministry in our church. Uh, But I saw this quote a while back. It said, uh, what is your favorite childhood memory? So think for just a moment about your favorite childhood memory. What would that be? Uh, For some, it might be um, playing with your siblings or your best friend. Uh, For some, it might be a a very big treat that your parents uh, gave you or took you to, a ball game or a a wonderful event, some family gathering, a specific birthday. But the one that they shared was one that I thought was perfect. This person said, my favorite childhood memory is my back not hurting. (laughs) And I thought... Preach on, brother, preach on. That is a, I know so many people, uh, including my wife, Joyce, who have very big issues there. And I could see how that would be a favorite childhood memory. You know, our pillars of faith, as uh, our shepherd Matt Haas calls them, are our older folks who, in spite of so many issues physically that they go through, still seek in every way possible to be here with our church family. I know our Janice Hardaway is not able to be here. Hopefully you're watching uh, online, sister, because this is her place. I mean, she will be here no matter what. And so many others are like that. I see Ruby is here. So many others, Carolyn Womack, we're missing today. So many that are our pillars of faith and go through so much simply to be with their church family. And that is 
such a great example for the rest of us and, and, and such a, a wonderful model of what to do when things aren't exactly perfect in your life. We all at times face moments where we ask ourselves, what do I do now? <laughs> something has happened, uh, we're in a situation, there's something going on in our life that's difficult. And so we find ourselves asking, what, what do I do now? What am I supposed to do now? Perhaps it's the loss of a loved one, as our workshop addressed. Perhaps it's the loss of health or a job. Perhaps it's a, a friend that you've lost or perhaps even been betrayed by. A relationship that's gone sour. A position that you had hoped to have and no longer do. What do I do now? Well, I want us to talk about that this morning and share, first of all, three options. Here are three options. The first is we can be reactive. We can react. You know, the old fight fire with fire, right? If they're going to get down and dirty with me, I'm going to get down and dirty with them. You know, whatever. Isn't that the golden rule? Do unto others as they do unto you. Well, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus said. Do unto others as you would like for them to do unto you. That's not the reactive uh, way. We think of Jacob and Esau, and we'll be talking about one of Jacob's sons today, Joseph. And we are reminded that uh, Jacob had a brother Esau, and when uh, his dad favored Jacob, the younger, over him, and Jacob, through some trickery, was able to get a blessing that should have gone to Esau in Esau's mind. Uh, he reacted by uh, doing something that would cause his parents to be upset and angry with him. And that is the angry response. I can, I can react. We can be reactive. Second one is this. I can be, we can be inactive. We can just do nothing. Well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm just going to do nothing. If that's the way they're going to treat me, I'm going to do nothing. If that's the songs that we're going to sing, I'm just not going to do it. If that's what the preacher's preaching on, I'm just not going to listen. <laughs> those are church examples. They're very close to us, and we understand those. We understand those. That's being inactive. By the way, this is the passive-aggressive choice. You know what passive-aggressive is? I think the loose definition of that is acting like a six-year-old. I didn't get my way, so I'm going to sit here and pout. That is an option. You can do that. Not very healthy, but you can do that. Being inactive is kind of like the difference between instant and delayed gratification. By sitting there and pouting and not doing anything and not participating because you didn't get your way, you're instantly gratified, but not, very, not for very long. And not very deep. We can be inactive. We can procrastinate. Or we can pout. Or we can do all of those other things that might be found here. Or the third choice, of course, is what? We can be proactive. We can be proactive. As Davy shared, we can walk worthy. No matter what else is true. And for Paul in Philippians 1, there were a lot of reasons why he would have been excused from doing that. Not the least of which is he was unjustly imprisoned. We can be proactive. When you, when you talk to our parents, they understand that. 
parenting, isn't that the best example of being proactive? Um, Every day, our young parents are forced to be proactive. There's a whole lot of things that they could do differently that would be instant gratification. (laughs) Okay, kid, fine. You want to go play in the street? Fine. Well, that's not very proactive. Okay, kid, you want to stay up till midnight? Fine, just stay up till midnight. That's instant gratification for the child and the parent, and it's not good for either, and our parents know that. And that's why every single day, multiple times a day, they make decisions and do actions that are being proactive, that are in that child's best interest, but down the line. We have terrific young parents here. One of Stephen Covey's seven habits is be proactive. Pro meaning before, active meaning, well, you do stuff. (laughs) You do stuff ahead of time. But what does that look like? Well, I think this statement helps to explain it maybe. Being proactive considers the past and looks toward the future in order to do what's best when? Today, right now. Acknowledging the past, uh, one of the things that um, Dean Miller shared that weekend that he was here with us is, especially when you think of loss, you don't, lose, you don't move on from something. You move on what? With something. You can't just pretend that those bad things didn't happen. You can't pretend that that loss that you've experienced that has flattened you doesn't affect you. It's not denial. And so when you move on, you move on with that as a part of who you are, as a part of your history, as a part of the the events that have made you what you are today. And hopefully they have helped to make you better. Being proactive considers the past, but also looks towards the future. Being proactive means living with the end in mind. It doesn't mean doing what's easiest for me right now, but it looks to the future and says, okay, what's the best thing that I can do that will help that turn out well? Being proactive considers the past and looks toward the future in order to do what's best today. And so it's calling us to action. Proactive. It means we're doing something today that's going to help cultivate and possibly even help bring that future that we want to see about. And that truly is the model of parenting or grandparenting in ways that will help that child be better in the future by considering the the knowledge and the experiences we have gleaned from in the past to do something about that that will help today. So what does it mean to be proactive? Well, here are a few steps. Number one, have a mission or purpose and goals. Number one could have been the values that we have, and those values come from where? Well, they come from right here. So with that in mind, we develop a mission or a purpose. We have a mission in life, a purpose in life. And then we ask, okay, how do I go about doing that? Well, that's when you set some goals. You decide, okay, here's what I can do. Here are the things that I want to try to achieve in order to bring that mission and purpose about, to make it successful, to to cultivate it so that it will actually occur. And then step two is to have a plan and strategies. Okay, you have a mission or a purpose. You have goals in mind. How are you going to do that? How are you going to accomplish that? Well, 
That's the plan. You plan that. You have some strategies. Here's what I can do in specific ways that can help bring about a successful mission, that can help me accomplish the purpose that God has for me. And then the third one is to act deliberately and on purpose. To act deliberately and on purpose. So we have knowledge about what we should do. And then we have skills that we know how to do it. But then you have to have the desire and the motivation to actually go through the process of doing that and bringing that about. The dictionary says being proactive is acting in anticipation of future problems, needs, or changes. Being farsighted, forward-looking. I like that. Those who are in some of the anonymous groups, such as Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, are very familiar with the serenity prayer. Most of the rest of us are as well. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and what else? The wisdom to know the difference. (laughs) It's a great, great prayer. The ability to accept the things that I can't change. And the courage and the willingness to change what I can. That's being proactive. And the wisdom to know which is which. Amy Morin in her book, The 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't don't Do. Number one is this. Mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. You see, when you do that, then you get stuck in that rut. And you can't be proactive there. Because Jesus is my light, there is sunshine in my soul. That's the last song we're going to sing today. Because Jesus is my paraclete. What a wonderful communion meditation, Wayne. Because he is my advocate. Because he is my counselor. Because he is my comforter. Because he is my savior. There is sunshine in my soul. And I don't have to feel sorry for myself. The person who is more reactive or inactive is likely feeling sorry for themselves over things that happened in the past. And they can't get out. They can, but they don't. And they may need help. This leads them to be negative and cynical about the future, which squashes any thought toward being proactive today. I love this Garrison Keillor quote from uh, Lake Wobegon days. Have faith that all this woofing is not the last word. And I know, you need to hear that in context. So here's the whole quote. To know and to serve God, of course, is why we're here. A clear truth that, like the nose on your face, is near at hand and easily discernible, but can make you dizzy if you try to focus on it too hard. But a little faith will see you through. What else will do except faith in such a cynical, corrupt time? When the country goes temporarily to the dogs... Cats must learn to be circumspect, walk on fences, sleep in trees, and have faith that all this woofing is not the last word. (laughs) Cynical, corrupt times. He wrote that in 1990. Some things haven't changed. There's a lot of woofing going on all around us right now. What's going to see us through? He's exactly right. What else will do except faith in such a cynical, corrupt time? 
And so I want us to spend a few moments today with Joseph, the story of Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament. There are some scripture passages there from the book of Genesis. And many of you are familiar with this story. God called Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham's wife was Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had a son of promise. They had another son, or Abraham did. But Abraham and Sarah had the son of promise, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau the oldest, but Jacob was the son of promise. And then Jacob uh, had two wives, actually, and he also had children through their handmaidens. He had 12 sons and a daughter. One of those sons was Joseph. He was the son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. And Jacob only had one full brother, and he was probably born around when Joseph was 10 years old or so, maybe, and his name was Benjamin. They were the only two sons of Rachel. And yes, Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, played favorites, and Rachel was his favorite, which meant that Joseph was his favorite. And Joseph is the one that uh, his daddy gave him that wonderful gift, that coat of many colors that inspired the terrific Dolly Parton song and lots of Bible stories since then. And his brothers hated him because of that. They hated him. And then to add to it, he was a dreamer and he had dreams of his parents and his siblings all bowing down to him. Well, if you want to ruin your relationship, that's the way to do it, right? And so about age 10, his mother dies giving birth to his brother Benjamin. At age 17, he was sold by his brothers to some traveling uh, travelers that were going to Egypt. And, and they, they sold him. And they took his coat of many colors and they ripped it all up and they killed an animal and they put blood all over it and they brought it to their dad and they said, look, what do you think has happened to your son? And Jacob, Israel, mourned. Well, Joseph's story continues though. They go on into Egypt and he is sold as a slave at age 17 to one of the officials of uh, Pharaoh named Potiphar. And he goes and being proactive, he could have just pouted, he could have just you know, tried to burn the place down. Instead, he was a great worker. And Potiphar put him in charge of everything. And because Joseph was obviously a handsome guy, Mrs. Potiphar, we don't get her name, but Mrs. Potiphar started making advances to him physically. And he refused to do so. And one time she had him trapped in the house by themselves and he had to leave his, his uh, clothes and just run out. And so she was offended. She cried sexual assault and... Potiphar came home and put Joseph in prison. Not sure exactly when that was, but he was there for years. And then later on, uh, uh, he's there, and there are two officials of Pharaoh who are also there. A butler who gives the wine to the king, and I think what happens there is he tests it first to make sure that it's okay, and if he doesn't die, then Pharaoh can have a drink. I'm not sure I'd want that job. He has a dream. Another official of Pharaoh, the baker, has a dream. And they don't understand what they mean. And so they tell Joseph in prison. And Joseph says, well, to the butler, the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position. To the baker, he says, you're going to get your head chopped off. And both things come about. And so Joseph tells that cupbearer, hey, listen, man. When you get restored, remember your old buddy, old pal Joseph here. I, I was unjustly sold by my brothers. I, I'm here in prison because of someone's false accusations. Get me out of here, would you? And so the butler goes and he's restored. And for two years, he doesn't do anything until Pharaoh has dreams. 
and nobody can interpret them. And that's when he says, yeah, I know a guy. I know a guy. And he did. So they clean Joseph up and they bring him and he stands before Pharaoh and he says, okay, your two dreams are exactly the same message because this is how certain God is about it. There's going to be seven years of plenty, excess, and then seven years of famine, nothing. So what I suggest, Pharaoh, is you get somebody responsible, put them in charge of a task, build up and save up all the grain that you can for those seven good years. And then during the seven years of famine, when the world doesn't have anything, you'll have plenty and you'll have the world eating out of your hand. And Pharaoh says, man, I like that idea. And I like you. The job is yours. Again, be careful what you, you know, volunteer as a project in a committee meeting. <laughs> and so Joseph does that for seven years. They build it up. And then the famine hits. By the way, Joseph was in prison or in Egypt, either as a slave or in prison from age 17 to age 30. 13 years. 13 years. After two of those years of famine, his father, Jacob, and his brothers, back in Palestine, in, the, in Canaan, they say, you know, we don't have anything, but we've heard there's grain in Egypt go. But Jacob would not let Benjamin go with them because that was the only surviving son of Rachel, as far as he knew. So he sends the other brothers. They go, and they go before Joseph, their younger brother, that they had sold and ended up in slavery in Egypt. But he's all decked out in the Egyptian stuff. And he's talking to them through a translator. Even though he speaks their language. And they don't recognize him. So he asks them about their family. He asks them about their father. He asks them about their brothers. He asks them about that youngest brother. And then he accuses them of being spies. And he says, look, if you're going to come back to me. I'm going to keep one of your brothers here as a hostage. You go home. And if you have to come back to me. You better make sure that you bring that youngest brother with you. Or else I'm going to figure that you're spies and you'll be dead. And so they go back home. Again, Jacob is mourning the loss of a son who's there in Egypt. And so they use up all of that supply and now they're hungry again. And Jacob says, you guys got to go back. And they say, we can't without Benjamin. And he says, you guys are going to be the death of me. But go. We have no choice. And it's during that time where Joseph, in one of the most emotional scenes in Scripture, reveals himself to his brothers, has everyone else leave, and he tells them, I'm your brother. God has done this. Ultimately, they go back and get their father Jacob, and he's revived knowing that Joseph is alive, and they all go back to Egypt, and that's how they get there and survive. And it goes really great until, as the words of Exodus begin, there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt who did not know Joseph, didn't know that story. Jacob dies when Joseph is 56, and then at 110 years of age, Joseph dies. And he tells them, be sure that you take my remains back with you because God will restore you to our homeland. Well, if there was ever anyone who needed to repeat the serenity prayer every day, it was Joseph. And if there was ever anyone who needed to be reminded of the importance of not feeling sorry for yourself, it was Joseph. Yet he was able to be proactive and look ahead to experiencing what he longed for, his release and vindication. He could have been reactive. He could have been inactive and done nothing. Instead, he was proactive. And while he was... A slave in Potiphar's household, he was the best slave he could be. And while he was in prison unjustly, 
he ran that place because he was so responsible. And now here he is. And Scripture says, amazingly, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Says that about him twice in Genesis 39. Once when he's a slave in Potiphar's house and once when he's in prison. The Lord was with Joseph. And we want to say, what? How could that be? But when you think about this story, it's really not Joseph who was proactive. Who was it? It was God. God knew that that famine was going to come. God wanted to provide for his people. And this is the way he did it. This is what he did in Joseph's 17th year of life. Looking ahead far down the road. 39 years later. Or 15, let's see, 13, let's carry the one. Uh, several years later. To make sure that his people had grain. During that famine. In Genesis chapter 45. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He tells them. This wasn't you that did this. This was God. Being proactive. God providing for his people. So don't feel badly. Not exactly what I would have told them. (laughs) And then when their father dies. They're afraid again that Joseph is. As a very powerful man. Was going to have them. Put in prison or worse. And once again, he tells them in that last chapter of the book of Genesis, don't be afraid. I'm not going to do anything because this was God's doing. God did this. He did it through you. But God brought me to Egypt so that he could bring all of us to Egypt so that we could all survive. It was God being proactive. So again, before we close, this reminder, have a mission or a purpose and goals. What is that mission? We sang about it. We will glorify the King of Kings. We will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of Lords. That's our mission. That's our purpose. And so we set goals so that we can accomplish that. And we have a plan and strategies. Part of what you're doing right now is that plan, that strategy. Regular Bible study, regular worship, being around other Christians. That fellowship that Eric talked about in that article that Wayne mentioned. And then having deliberate and purposeful actions, actually doing those things that will accomplish that goal, that will fulfill that mission. God was proactive in providing for Joseph, but even more so, God was proactive in providing for us. Because he knew that we would be sinners. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to be that paraclete that Wayne spoke about. So that we could have a comforter, so that we could have a counselor, so that we could have an advocate when we stand before the Father. And he would say, when you look at them... See me. That was God acting ahead of time for us in an incredible, amazing way. When Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I don't think he's talking about heaven there. I think he's talking about Calvary there. 
I think he's talking about Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of the cross. I'm going there, Jesus says. I'm about to be arrested. You guys are all going to run for your scared little lives. I'm going to go away for a while, but I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And the there was the cross. And my friends, he did that for you and me as well. He did that so that he could be proactive and prepare a place for us. So that we could be with him for eternity. God forgives the sins of the past. And knows what the future holds. And he gives us a path to take today. When we get on that path, we're being proactive. When we do what Noah did, when we do what Abraham did, when we do what those first century Christians did, we trust and obey. We're being proactive, looking ahead, realizing God brings us forgiveness, realizing He knows the future, and He's invited us to share it. Then we get on that path with Him today. My friends, accept his forgiveness. Accept the forgiveness of that Lamb of God. Trust him with the future. Today, tomorrow, and throughout your lifetime. And follow him today. Obey his word today. Every day. For the rest of our lives. Because it's worth it in the end. And it's needed today. If we can help you live that way, come as we stand and sing our song together.